You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. We're going to be in Philippians, so if you do have your Bibles, you can turn there. Philippians chapter 1, as Sue just read. Thank you, Sue. Um, From the passage of the introduction of the letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. We're going to be spending... Nine weeks in uh, in the letter of Philippians, and actually, I think nine weeks in moving into Advent season. That's how close we are to holidays, so uh, there you go. But uh, but I have the privilege of being able to step up here and uh, and and preach and teach and worship together with you through the introduction to the letter, Paul's intro. So it's going to look a little different, maybe from another typical sermon, because I want to give you a little bit of a broad picture of uh, of the city of Philippi, the church in Philippi. And, and some of what Paul is preparing and foreshadowing for us in this introduction. Um, Paul is a master class in giving you some clues, especially in this intro, uh, to what he's going to cover topics, the topics he's going to be covering uh, throughout the letter. And so in this particular letter, he's writing to a church that's in Philippi. It's a city that's in Greek, actually. It's in the Roman, um, the Roman Empire. It's a little bit later on in the Roman Empire, actually not far from a lot of the, the breakdown of, of the community, but Philippi is a pretty substantial city still in the empire. It has Greek origins, actually named after King Philip II, who was Alexander the Great's father. But it has more significant Roman um, history because Octavius, who became Augustus Caesar, and Mark Antony conquered Julius Caesar's assassins right outside of the city in the Battle of Philippi. And so it became a significant city, and actually they, after that battle, after that war, uh, began to settle some retired Roman soldiers in the city of Philippi in an effort to try to colonize it a little bit, put some of their own there. That's the way they, they did that. It worked out somewhat, a little bit, but there's a lot of Roman presence there. They had to take land from the local Greeks and give it to the Romans, so there's a little bad blood. Um, but, but it was a Roman city that was substantially modeled after Rome. The architecture there was Roman. It looked like a mini Roman city. The, the primary language was Latin. But there was a lot of diversity coming from the Greek background, being in a port city on, on the Via Ignatia, which was a roadway for trade throughout Rome. If you're not familiar, Rome had a pretty uh, substantially developed road system which made the spreading of the gospel uh, that much more effective because they could get from place to place. And Philippi was a major city on that roadway, just nine miles in from the coast. So it was, a, it was a major trade city. It was a Roman city. There's a lot of people wanted to make a lot of money in a major city. And when Paul came to this space, he was led by God there. He met people by God's providence, and he established a city among crazy background of people. And he's at this point writing a letter to this mature church from prison to a people with no major issues or rebuke that needs to be made. The letter doesn't have anything like a lot of the other letters do. There's some issues he's addressing, but but nothing major. It's primarily very casual, very familiar, very loving and kind. He had deep affection for this church. Within this intro, you can see he mentions having them in his heart. That they're partners in the gospel, partners in grace. And he even literally says, God knows how much I miss you. Ask him, I miss you guys. And how much? With the deep affection 
of Christ Jesus. You know the kind of affection Christ has for you? The kind that led him to his death on the cross. And that's how much he loves his church. This letter to the Philippians is friendly and familiar. The closest thing to a section of any kind of systematic theology in here is the Christ hymn in chapter 2. Besides that, it's actually described as theology and street clothes. This is casual. So there's really only one particular issue that Paul is prompted to address, and it's unity. It's unity. The overarching theme in Philippians, and there are others, but the overarching theme, all being supported throughout this letter, is Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live as citizens of a heavenly city and grow in their commitment to serve God and one another. It's unity. And it's, it's right that he would do so because God has from the beginning been uniting the people for himself. And in this church, he's doing the same thing. In 1 Peter 2, 9-10, we read, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul is echoing these same sentiments that God is in fact doing something miraculous and drawing together different people from different backgrounds to make a people for himself. I'm going to move forward in this, but I realize I didn't introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Chad, one of the pastors that came across the I It's very casual here. I'm very, I'm very familiar and informal. Actually, last week I took a selfie with everybody. I didn't do it either. So we see God's pulling together people. He's drawing people into himself. And there are three biblical realities. This is what I'm going to do, guys. There's a, there could be a lot here. It's a simple intro, and you're like, well, how much you can get out of this? I'm going to tell you there's a lot here because Paul is a, is a deep dude. But we're going to just take some time here to talk about what is Paul setting up in the letter? What does that look like with the background of the future? And then a little bit of you know how he echoes that throughout the rest of the letter and what we're going to dig deeper into in the weeks to come. We don't have time to go deep on all of these topics. But we're going to do our best. And so there are three biblical realities of our unity as God's people, which are evident from Paul's introduction here. There's supporting passages in the letter, and from what we know about the founding of the Philippines, there are these three things. First, God unites us. God unites us in the body of Christ. The second is that God unites us for the mission of Christ. And the third is God unites us to make us like Christ. God unites us in the body of Christ, for the mission of Christ, to make us like Christ. And within each of these realities, by the way, we can see God's grace clearly at work. He's at work. He's doing something. But we as believers are also called to obedience. And this is a tension present throughout the letter of Philippians. It's a frequent theme throughout the letter about the relationship between God's grace in our life and human work. So let's dive in. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1. And see, first and foremost, how does God unite us in the body of Christ? Well, first I want to start with the backgrounds of these people. Because they come from all walks of life. Paul uh, comes to Philippi, where God is forming the church from an incredibly diverse background. The actual text of this story, if you want to read it, 
later, it's in Acts 16. If you go to Acts 16, you'll see Paul and his Macedonian call and him uh, reaching and speaking to each of these members of the first church in Philippi. God directed Paul to Macedonia from Philippi. He actually says the Spirit would not allow him to go into Asia. And that a man came to him in a dream, a Macedonian man, and asked Paul to come help him. And so Paul said, well, the Spirit's not letting me go this way, the Spirit's not letting me go this way. God's giving me a dream to come this way. I'm going to go to Macedonia and see if he stops me there. And he did. And so he headed on to a major port city of Philippi. And when he gets there, specifically in this city in Macedonia, which is, by the way, the first church to introduce uh, the gospel to Europe, the entry point. Paul comes upon, uh, on Sunday, which is normally his habit, he goes to the, the worship place. He wants to go reason together with the people in, um, in the temple. But there is no synagogue. There is no place of worship because there's likely not enough Jewish men to actually have one. So instead he goes to the collecting point at, this, at the gate near the river, and there's a group of women who are praying. There's a group of women. And one of those women is Lydia. In Acts 16, 13 through 15. She's from Thyatira with a home in Philippi. It says she's a seller of purple goods. I'm going to read to you the, the story of how Paul meets Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Let's turn to it. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi a Roman colony in the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. She persuaded us. In other translations, it says she she um, pressed on them, she urged on them, she pervaded on them. She was insistent on them to come to her home. And so this woman is a successful woman of purple goods. If you're not familiar with this, nowadays you guys think you put red and blue together to get purple, right? Back then you had to do this process of taking snails <laughs> and boiling them down and getting the purple dye that came out from that, and then dyeing clothes. It's extremely rare. Purple was a color of royalty, and so she's dealing in fine goods. She 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 is a she's got the nice high dollar items in the city of Philippi, and she's apparently good at it. She's from Philip from Thyatira, probably has a home there, has a home in Philippi, which they go to later on in this story. So she's a successful woman. We never hear anything about her husband. She's not Roman. She's Asian. She's not Greek. She's from Turkey, and she's the first person that Paul comes upon that the Lord opens her heart. The Lord opens her heart. She's a God-fearer outside the city to pray, which means that she's totally rejected the idea of all these all these multiple gods, but she has no idea this one God she wants to get to know who it is. And Paul introduced her. And so Lydia is the first, and she prevails against Paul, and they start worshiping in her home. Secondly, he's walking around the streets in verse 16 through 18, and he comes across a slave girl. Once as we were on our way to pray, a slave girl met us with a spirit by which she could predict the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. And as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. 
She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. That's so resonant. He was annoyed. He said, I'm too tired of this. You just keep running around telling and yelling about your interaction over him. So what does he do? Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. I got none, I don't have any kind of deep theological like position for why Paul's annoyed and how that's good for you to, to like give and live in that. It's just that Paul is a person. He's a human being who's trying to live out the mission of God. And the scripture clearly tells us he's annoyed by the fact that she won't leave him alone. And God uses that. So the, there's a lot of freedom in the fact that we can be imperfectly be serving after him. I would venture to say, don't try, try not to be annoyed with other people. But it happens. And so Paul casts out this demon. And this slave girl doesn't say she joins the church, but she's one of these next people that he meets, poor, impoverished. Uh, she's demon-possessed. She's making money for her, for her owners. And all of a sudden, up turns the town because he disrupts completely their income stream. And the third one is the jailer in Acts 16, 25-34, where it says that after he disrupts their income stream, the, the, the owners of the slave girl go to the magistrate and say, this, these guys are teaching something that's not lawful for us guys, these Jews. We need to do something about that. So the magistrates beat them, which is not lawful for Romans, by the way, beat them and jailed them without a trial. Drew them to jail, and there's a jailer. And we see the jailer in verse 25, if we start reading Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They just got beat for what they were doing. They got thrown in jail, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the earthquake, uh, sorry, the foundation of the jail was shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself. He just lost all the prisoners as far as he did which is not a good thing for his job. He's working class dude. He has no power. He has no authority. He's screwed up. So he's ready to take his own life. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself. Because we're all here. The gates open. The doors open. The walls fell down. We're still here, buddy. Don't hurt yourself. And what's the jailer's response? The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He heard them singing. He heard them worshiping. He heard, their, he heard the message from them. But then he saw their kindness toward him. But they didn't run. They knew the deal. They hung around because God was doing something else in this jailer's life. If Paul hadn't got beaten, if Paul hadn't got thrown in prison, they'd let his jailer and so they bring God brings together this Lydia slave girl, this jailer, and they brought them together to start the first church in Europe. And in chapter uh, 16, verse 40, we see they start meeting in Lydia's home, where Paul had stopped by to encourage them after he left the jail. And there's brothers and sisters, there's more people there apparently. They're already doing missions here. They're already evangelizing, they're already meeting people. They were partners in grace with Paul, meaning they heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. The Lord opened up Lydia's heart, and they repented and sought after God. What must I do to be saved? God changed them. And Paul had a deep affection for this church. So how is it that God is doing something in uniting us in the body? What is he doing? Well, the beginning of the letter, 
Paul makes a reference towards that when he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. How many people in here who are believers feel like you're a saint? You're just living it out day by day. You're not annoyed like Paul. You're walking in the Spirit. Paul says you're all saints. If your faith and trust is in Christ and you're in his righteousness, God doesn't see your unrighteousness. You see Christ's righteousness on your behalf. If you're familiar with the Catholic tradition, becoming a saint in their formal sense is a lot more involved. First, you have to be dead. Then there's a process of veneration, whether you deserve it. Then once they determine whether you deserve it and you're blessed, they begin to look to see if there's any miracles that are performed by intercession that can be specifically attributed to you. And then if a miracle is determined to finally be performed that they feel directly connects to intercession through you, now you're saying that it's a sign. That's not the kind of saint you're talking about. All wrote to the Corinthian church and called them saints. If you're familiar with that letter, they were not they were not the venerated kind of saints. They had troubles. They had issues. A saint is the identity granted to all believers. It's identity that God grants us in Christ to be set apart, to sanctify us, to make holy. That's what it means. All those who are in Christ are set apart by God as his people. We're justified. And even Paul makes reference to this when he says God does the work in the beginning of this passage there where he says... In Christ, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God began the work. God changed you. God made you a saint. And he's going to change the job. We are justified by an alien righteousness. That's what, that's what Martin Luther said. It's not our own. It doesn't belong to us. It's outside of ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, it states this. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him might become the righteousness of God. That's what it's talking about. That, God, that Christ became sin for us that we might become righteous. And so as saints, our standing before God is secured by Christ. That's the first thing we see about how God is uniting us in the body. That he is making us saints in Christ. Secondly, though, we see that there is a work for us to do in uniting together. We cultivate that unity as servants. Paul notably starts this letter, actually, by calling himself a servant. Most specifically, although in our culture we might like, hit a little strange, he's actually a slave. Doulos. Okay, a bond servant. Someone who's bound. And in that culture, they understand that. That, that hierarchy. Once you're a slave, you're always a slave. Freed, freed men were called freed slaves. And so in this, Paul is identifying him only as a servant, him and Timothy. And that's significant, because elsewhere in other letters, he also said an apostle. He gave himself his title. But here, this is the only one we have where he says, I'm just a slave. But then he turns around after that, and he tells, uh, he calls out the leaders in names of honor. Where he says to all the saints, including the overseers and the He's foreshadowing in this area. We can see the idea that he encourages Philippians in, in 2, 3, and 4, where he says everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others, thinking more highly of others. And that's what he's doing. 
Timothy, he also refers to later as saying, genuinely cared about your interests. He's the one who holds up in honor because why he genuinely cared about the Philippians' interests. And then only one other place in the entire passage is the term doulos in this letter used. And it's about Christ. Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians in 2, 5 through 8 to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ who existing in the form of God did not consider the quality of God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. See, our standing is secured by Christ. The reason God considers us a saint is that Christ humbled himself to death on our behalf. Servitude wasn't valued in Roman society, so they're not thinking this is a great idea. It's better about having power and wealth and position. But God elevates us in his own time. Instead, we lower ourselves to serve one another. That's what Paul is pointing out for the Philippians. Christ visibly demonstrated lowly service by washing his disciples' feet in the the book of John. And here, in the same way, God is calling us to serve one another. And Paul is reminding the Philippians of this very need. If we're going to cultivate unity, we need to be servants. And he had already seen that in them. He saw that and encouraged them in them. He said, you were partners with me in the gospel. You were partners with me in grace. You served me in my imprisonment and served me when I was in the the, um, defense of the gospel. Because even though God is at work calling all different kinds of people together in the gospel, in this lifetime, we're still imperfect. Guys, brothers and sisters, we're imperfect people. We're different people with different backgrounds and cultures, bringing different preferences and different opinions to the table. How does a group of people like that live together here? It was a challenge for the Philippian church. It was a challenge that Paul had to address. And good thing we've gotten past that today. Good thing that we don't see professing believers leading fellowships over political preferences. Good thing that we don't see professing believers leading fellowships over max. Good thing we don't see professing believers manipulating, gossiping, backbiting for power and control. It doesn't happen anymore. Good thing we don't see professing believers planting a flag on any other hill other than the gospel. Because that's our priority, right? Right. We're perfect. These are legit. Listen, let me hear you. Please hear me. There are legitimate reasons and biblical reasons to break fellowship. There really are. They need to be talked through and prayed through. But, brothers and sisters, before you are willing to accept any disunity, uh, I encourage you to consider Paul's admonition to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. And he says this If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. The way you strive together in unity is to serve others 
and in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Lay down your life for one another. That is why that is the way that Christ served us. He laid down his own life so that we would live. So God unites a diverse group of saints, but God doesn't just unite us in the body of Christ as some social club. He gives this new group of people uh, a bunch of new friends, but not for the purpose of just hanging out. He actually unites us for the mission of Christ. For the mission of Christ. So we see this second, that God unites us for the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ is advancing the gospel. That's clear in Matthew 28, 18. Where, he, where Jesus Christ, before he ascends into heaven, tells his disciples this. He says, Jesus came here and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what Christ commanded his disciples to do before he left. He said, go, teach them what I taught you, baptize them, make disciples, I'll be with you. It's a really, really simple directive with really difficult, difficult challenge to live out. We are imperfect people united together for Christ's mission. Paul um, was directed by God to go to Macedonia. So God is always at work in advancing his own mission, his own gospel. So remember we see both, both and God's at work. We also need to obey. Well, Christ has directed us and he's led us into the direction of, of advancing the gospel. Well, God's always at work. How is he at work? Well, God's directed Paul to head to Macedonia. God opened up the heart of Lydia. God placed Paul and Silas in that jail cell and introduced them to the jailer. In any and all circumstances, God is in the business of advancing the gospel. Paul wanted to let the Philippians know this early, by the way. Right after this passage in this intro, in Philippians 1, 12-13, he tells them, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. That I've been put in prison, I've been put in jail, you might think I can't be preaching anymore, that I can't be discipling, I can't be meeting new people and introducing laws to the gospel, but guess what? God is still at work. God is doing something that would never have been on my agenda. I did not say, let's plant this church, guys, and by the way, step one, I'm going to go to jail. <laughs> that's really going to advance the gospel. But that's what Paul says God's doing. He wants you to know so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment has been because of Christ. So Paul's taken off the street. He's put into a place among jailers and Praetorian guard. By the way, that's the high-ranking guard of Caesar and his household. And they all had begun to know the gospel. How is Paul ever going to be in front of them? God. God, who's at work? He's advancing the gospel. And Jesus told us as much in the Great Commission. He said that we wouldn't be going at it alone. What's the beginning of Matthew 28? That passage we just read the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. And then he ends it by saying, I am with you all here. To the end of the age. He's, he's at work, and he's with us. Secondly, though, not only is God at work, but Paul indicates in here that we join him in mission. We join him in the mission. Philippians were partners in the gospel. Philippians 1, 3 through 5. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you always, praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
In Philippians 1, in verse 7, he again says, You are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel. How did the Philippians partner? They gave financially. They sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison. That's how this letter came back to them. Epaphroditus was sent because they heard he was in prison and they wanted to care for him. In verses uh, 15 of chapter 4, he references their partnership where he tells the Philippians, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. This church did it. Financially giving to Paul and his mission. So how do we advance the gospel practically speaking? We, we, we advance the gospel in our practice, practical ministry, in the way that we serve, in preaching and teaching, in discipleship, in leadership. We advance the gospel through financial and physical support, like the Philippians did. They gave generously. We advance the gospel by embodying, even embodying the gospel, like Epaphroditus did. We brought encouragement all in jail. In all these ways, the gospel advances by reaching new believers, by growing believers in maturity, and in changing people, families, and communities. The gospel advances. God's kingdom come to earth as it is now. The third thing we see as God unites us on mission is that not only are we united together with God and his power working and us joining in the mission, but God reorients our joy. Paul says he's, he has joy while he's in prison. Joy is a theme in Philippians. There's actually 15 references to joy and rejoicing in Philippians. Verses 4 through 5, we just read of chapter 1. Always praying with joy. Why was it? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. He responded when he heard that people were preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons. I don't care. At least the gospel's going out. Verse 25 and 26 of chapter 1, he again says, Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting or your rejoicing in Christ Jesus may abound. We're boasting because the gospel's going forth. He's boasting because he's boasting in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 17 and 18, But even if I am poured out, even if my life, Paul says, was poured out, if I was given as a sacrificial uh, offering on the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. My life is lost for the sake of the gospel in your life. Rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 28. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him. Talking about Epaphroditus. And I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with, uh, with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry. So Epaphroditus risked his own life for the sake of the gospel and Paul said rejoice in those times. Chapter 3, verse 1. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. He says, I'm going to write about this all the time, by the way. If I repeat myself, I'm sorry. It's good for you. Rejoice in the Lord. In verse 10 of chapter 4, he finally says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. There's partnership with us. See, Christian joy isn't rooted in your circumstances. Trials may come. By, by the way, people will disappoint you. Uh, Heather and I, my wife, you may, you may not know, uh, we've been married for over 16 years. Right? We've been married over 16 years. And, and I taught her within the first year that her joy cannot be based on me. She's not a yes. Very, very enthusiastic. Part of that. Just because of me, I, that's the way I live. You know that for our one year anniversary, you know that I do? Oh, she's laughing. One year anniversary. I'm such a romantic. Um, for our one year anniversary, I somehow convinced her to go for a long weekend in Atlantic City. Um, uh, I, I'm not proud of this. I'm being very transparent, okay? They don't criticize me, but guess what I did? Uh, it was overcast and raining. <laughs> I spent the whole time playing poker. While she walked the boardwalk and sat on the cloudy beach for our one year anniversary. God has sanctified me. I won't do that again. We haven't done that again. That might be an extreme example, but people disappoint. Your joy can't be based on people, it can't be based on circumstance. Pandemics will come, as we've learned. And by the way, wreck your plans. I had plans. They did not look like my plans at all. It, but, but can I tell you something? Uh, the pandemic and all of its effects, and I'm talking specifically about what we just passed through, all those effects have been difficult for a lot of people, okay? They have. But do you know that God worked through the circumstances and challenge of this pandemic to pave the way for this journey? God aligned the people, the financial support, the circumstances in his timing. And just like I wouldn't have planned to go to jail <laughs> to start a church, I wouldn't have planned the global pandemic either. Neither could I. He did all those things. And you're sitting here today in this room, in this church, with this mission, are a testimony of God's work in the advance of the gospel. And members of King's Cross, you're joining in the mission. Christian joy isn't rooted in circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord, and our joy is rooted in the advance of the gospel. So we're united for the mission of Christ. And we must hold on to each of these truths. God is always at work in advancing the gospel. He commands us to join in. Go and make disciples. He'll be with you always. If you believe that God is the only one at work in saving loss, then you can get all kinds of sideways. You can be like the response of William Carey got when he talks about going to save the heathens. And people said, sit down. You're a zealot. If God wants to save him, he'll do it. Or you can go the other direction and think it all depends on us. And then we have to use all forms of manipulation and emotion to try to get people to come to Jesus. It's just not the case. 
I would rather know the guys that work with me and work boldly and know that he is gracious enough to work even through my imperfections. Work hard on the mission. Rest in knowing that God is with you. And pray that God would reorient our joy in the Lord and in the advance of the gospel. And finally, what we see in these passages, as God unites us in the body of Christ for the mission of Christ, he does it ultimately to make us like Christ. To make us like Jesus. See, the Bible term for this is sanctification. When uh, our faith is in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sin, we are justified. We talked about that. We're saints before God, and he sees us as righteousness, but we aren't living. He doesn't want us to continue living that way. Not to live in that. It's already, but not yet. We aren't living as saints yet. We're living here as saints in Christ, but we got all kinds of baggage. I mean, maybe I'll speak for myself. I got all kinds of baggage. You're a saint, but we're struggling as a sinner. And the process of becoming more and more like Christ is one of sanctification. God forgives us our sin, but he doesn't want us to stay in our sin. So how does God change us? How does he make that? How does he do that work? Well, Paul references it for the Philippian church. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God's at work in you, and he's changing you to be like Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you are a saint, God is trying to make you more like that. And he's working in you for that. Paul says he started the work in the Philippian church, and Paul is confident that he will complete it. And he's not going to sit back and just watch. But we can't just sit back and watch. We're not passive in this chain. See, rather, as God is at work in us, we're also called to obey and follow after God as he leads us. We obey, and Paul mentions this. He talks this very phrasing in chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. He's confident that God will complete the work in Philippians, but he also wants them to press on in obedience. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who is working in you. Both to will and work according to his good purpose. See, he says both. Obey. Just like you started, obey. Why? Because God's working in you. God is changing you, so obey. He's training you. He's teaching you. He's guiding you. Do the things you know to do now, and he'll make you more like that. And that's exactly what Paul's referencing to as he speaks in verses 1 through 6. He's confident that God is at work in the Philippians because he sees fruit in their life already. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Seven, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you all because why? I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You were there for me. You demonstrated Christ's work in you. You showed fruit by the way you served me and partnered in the gospel. So I'm confident that God's going to continue working in these days. Not because I know some secret knowledge that God has. He hasn't exposed this to me in some unique way by saying, yeah, these are mine. But I see the fruit. His prayer for them, then, in the end of this passage that we read, 
is that love they demonstrate will continue to grow. He says, this love you showed me that I'm confident you're growing in, I pray that it will continue to grow. Verse 9, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every discernment, every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot right there. But I want you to see this. He desires the love that the Philippian church has already been showing towards one another. He reminds them of that. I know God's going to complete this work. He prays that love will continue to grow. But not by itself. He says your love would grow what? In knowledge. and every kind of son. That you would not only love wide open and continue to grow in your love for one another, but that you would have the knowledge to know what's morally right. That you would have discernment and wisdom to judge how to live morally right. Love without knowledge is just empty emotionalism. Knowledge without love is dry dead orthodoxy. There's a lot of smart people who don't love people. Paul would say you're not really that smart, you're not really that wise, because wisdom in the church looks like loving others. And demonstrating the fruit of righteousness of God working. That's exactly what he said to the, to the Pharisees. Go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You guys are just, you got all your head knowledge. You, you sacrifice, you do all the tithing correctly. You're, you're, you're tithing from your mint, your, the, the, the herbs in your cabinet, but you don't love people. That's what Christ told them. And why is it that Paul wants love to grow in knowledge and all discernment? He wants it to grow in that way so that they would live a life more and more in obedience to Christ. More and more in alignment with what you learn. And the purpose of that is so that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. By the way, not perfect. Paul acknowledges that. Pure and blameless here doesn't mean without fault. Those who say they're without sin are liars. So we would read that in John. But Paul doesn't believe we're going to attain perfection now, but he says we're going to pursue it. In chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says exactly this. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. So Christ is changing you. God is changing us to be more like Christ. And he's doing it as we take hold and make every effort to pursue after Christ. We pursue holiness. And why do we pursue holiness? So that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. It comes through Jesus, and it's to the glory and praise of God. It's the same kind of fruit that we talk see in Galatians when he talks about the Spirit of God being in the Galatian church and the demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That the demonstration of the change inwardly, the knowledge and discernment would be demonstrated outwardly in the way they treated one another. And then in Galatians, in the back half of that passage, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that's what Paul's asking the Philippine church to do. You say you know believe these things. I pray that that love abounds. And it would be demonstrated in the way you treat them. 
that you'd be a servant to one another as you seek to live in you. That you would love and hold one another up as higher and more esteemed than yourself. And Paul says that as we walk in obedience, God will continue to make us more and more. He's the one. So God's at work in us and through us, but we are but are we walking in obedience, church? Unbeliever, if you're here today, God is inviting you into his family. To be united with Christ. All of your sin, guilt, and shame are paid for on the cross. Christ laid down his life for you. He laid his down so you will live. Believers here today, are you looking out for your own interests over the interests of others? How can you partner together to advance the gospel as our priority? And I pray this for you. That your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of Christ. Pray with me. Father, I ask God that you would make this true and live in our hearts. God, fill us with your spirit so that we would be united together as one in the body of Christ. God, demonstrate your work in each of our lives as you show yourself in the fruit of righteousness that is shown in the way we serve one another, love one another, lay down our life for one another. God, I pray that you prioritize the gospel in our life. Lord, that the advance of the gospel would be our mission together. That we would recognize that the truth of how you bring us together into the family of God is the good news that we proclaim. And Lord, reorient our joy so that we can celebrate and rejoice no matter what our circumstance as you continue to bring many into the kingdom. God, we don't know what tomorrow might bring, and we don't know what tomorrow might look like. And we can't plan, but we do our best to work for the mission of Christ and trust that you will bring fruit. I pray that it would be true for all of us in here, that your spirit would grow us to be more like Christ day by day. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.